0: Mind, body, spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called Extremely Frightening and Upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple+. Plus.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
3: And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry.
4: And I'm Mary Beth.
3: In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. (coughs) Fuck. There's no coughing in podcasting, Mary Beth.
4: Tell that to my cold. Okay. It's like I thought about it too much and then I started coughing.
0: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh.
4: This (laughs) is... This week, our guest is Preston Fassel. He's the managing editor for Daily Grindhouse, and you've seen his writing across the internet from Frangoria to CineDump to Rue Morgue and to Dread Central. He's also an Ippy Award-winning author whose latest book, Landis, the story of the real of a real man on 42nd Street, is currently available everywhere to purchase. Welcome to the show, Preston!
5: Thank you for having me. This is so cool.
4: We're really You're excited cool. to finally
3: chat with you.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> You're cool. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Anyway, (laughs) Um, but before we do talk about like all of your writing, let's take it back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to horror?
5: You know, it's really funny because in my family, my mom is the big horror fan. And as I got older... And I was a teenager and a young adult. My mom and I, that was a big thing for us to share was watching horror movies together. And, uh, when the Saw movies were coming out to the theaters, that was a yearly tradition for us. Uh, we would go oh. and see the new Saw every year and the new paranormal oh my God. activity. Oh my and God, the funny... I love that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We would, you know, rent, rent stuff from uh, Hollywood video. Like I first watched The Exorcist with her. I first watched uh, Texas Chainsaw with her. Uh, but what's funny is my dad hates horror movies. Oh, but he's the one who got me into horror movies. Because back in the eighties, when I was a kid, he was showing me all of these things like Monster Squad and Ghostbusters and uh, mm-hmm. Night of the Creeps. And like, yeah. I don't know what it was, but for like this brief period in the eighties, my dad liked these kinds of horror movies and would like show them to me. And that's what really first got me interested in horror movies.
3: Wow. So I- I'm wondering, does, does he like – because all of those that you mentioned are sort of like horror comedy, or at least adjacent. Did, is he more of, of a fan of horror comedies, or is he just not into horror anymore? Just
5: not into horror, period. Wow. Like As a matter of wow. fact, uh, the very first date he went on with my mom was to uh, drive in in uh, upstate New York and Buffalo, where they both grew up. And it was to see a double feature that my mom wanted to see of Night of the Living Dead and Egyptian Blood Feast. And your mom sounds
4: my-
0: fucking cool as hell. I love <laughs> your mom
4: can we get her your mom
5: on the show too. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is is afterwards my dad asked my future in-laws if he could sleep on their couch because after that oh. double feature he did not want to drive back home by himself. Oh. <laughs> So he is just not a horror person. He's a comedy person, though. And I think okay. that like he found those movies funny enough that the comedy in them yeah. overrode the horror elements. And then he was like, hey, sport, you know, let's, let's watch these together. They're, you know, relatively family friendly. And so that was my gateway drug into horror. And it was like my my parents were these separate dealers. And it was like my dad was the the weed of horror and got me into it. <laughs> and then after that, here comes my mom with like, you know, the really hard stuff. And it's like, now we're going to watch The Exorcist.
4: So, wow. okay, you, obviously there's two kinds of horror movies that you watched a lot as a kid, but like, what was the first one you remember watching?
5: Actually, the one we're going to uh, be talking about later in this episode. Ooh. That's another okay, one cool. of the uh, reasons that I chose it.
4: Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so what were some of your other favorites growing up that are ones that really scared you as a kid, besides what we're talking about today?
5: Oh, So the scene at the beginning of Ghostbusters with the library ghost, where she like oh. starts out as like the old lady and then transforms into that ghoul and like flies at the camera. I loved Ghostbusters as a kid, and we had it on VHS, and I would always fast forward to pass that scene and then start <laughs> watching the movie, because I just could not deal with the library ghost.
3: You know, there there were some scenes in, in the original Ghostbusters that um are actually quite frightening like that that scene in particular like you know watching it now it's it's it I have so wrapped up in a nostalgia that it's funny but like as a kid it's kind of horrifying
5: it is okay.
4: but I also when I used to go to the library when I was in grad school and even in the library, because the library in my grad school looked like the library a little bit from Ghostbusters. And I would I wasn't scared, but I always thought about it. Like, what if she walks out from behind one of the stacks? <laughs> so, like, it's always, like, in your brain. Because, I, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Who, who the fuck knows? I don't know. Maybe she could be haunting University of Chicago's libraries. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised.
5: And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this when you uh, asked me to come on the show. I was thinking, what are the movies that, like, really traumatized me as a kid? And I realized it was more for me horror tv things and then horror stories and books uh
1: okay because
5: the the movie we're going to talk about later and i don't know if i should be getting into this now but but as a kid i had this very weird relationship with horror up until i was probably in my teens and i would seek out horror stuff and traumatize myself (laughs) and could not sleep Did not want to see anything else, even vaguely horror related for the longest time. And then it would wear off and it'd be like, okay, now I got to go back again. And I had this (laughs) weird, like kind of dancing around the fire, sort of like teasing my hand over a hot stove relationship with horror where I would like burn myself a little bit and then let it heal and then go back to it. And it really wasn't until I was a teenager that I went like full tilt into horror. Uh, but I can remember as a kid, uh, finding the short story books in my, uh, in my class, uh, classrooms, like little library that they had, and it was, uh, Oh, I wish I could remember the name of these books. They always had a kid on the cover reading a book. And it was like the cover of the book he was reading was the cover of the book. And there was like some kind of oh. monster behind him. You, you know what uh, I'm talking yeah, about.
3: I do know what you're yeah. talking about, but I can't remember them.
5: And there was this one story I remember about like this uh, woman who had like a vision of her husband who'd been a pilot in World War II, like just as a head, like floating in water. And then like she finds out that he like actually died in the war and another one. I'm remembering this. Yes, yeah. I've
3: read that story. Yeah. But I don't I don't remember what it was called, but I this is like I'm having like flashbacks to childhood.
5: Yeah, And then there was this other one that was supposedly about like the Tower of London and supposedly like these guards on duty saw the ghost of Anne Boleyn carrying her own head. And I would like <sighs> read this stuff and then like sit up at, awake in my bedroom at night until like two in the morning with my lights still on, not able to go to sleep.
3: That's amazing. You you also mentioned um, like horror television. What what horror shows did you use to to watch? So
5: it would be like when these kids shows in the late eighties and early nineties would like incongruously have like a horror episode. Like there's this okay. episode of the Beetlejuice cartoon that's like all themed around Edgar Allan Poe stuff. And it was really incongruously morbid. And like some of the stuff in there is like stuff from mm-hmm. a like honest to goodness adult Tim Burton movie or uh, Tiny Toons did this one. And I think that they did an Edgar Allan Poe one too. And it was just.
2: They did. Yeah.
5: And it's just so like, where did this come from? It's almost like a real life lost episode creepypasta. And, you know, here's, you know, little four year old Preston going into <laughs> Tiny Toons. Oh, what are Babs and Buster going to get up to this week? And here's like the zombie of Lenore flying at the camera and it's like oh.
3: you know i think those those are probably the the worst for kids is that you know you because it's all about expectations right so you're going you know what looney tunes are you know what tiny tunes are you know what the animaniacs are or dark duck or whatever the case may be you're going in it and you're watching it and then something happens it's like oh wait this is kind of scary and it, it surprises you because you're not expecting it to be horror
2: yeah
5: Hey, just you know, you're in this like at least going into a horror movie, you've got some context for what you're going into. Mm-hmm. You can kind of prepare yourself, and it's almost like this high concept jump scare where it's like, oh, I'm you know going to go in and see this comforting thing, and then bam.
2: Nope.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I know that. I know that feeling. That was. There was a lot. Like there was a lot of a horror in kids' cartoons, especially in like the 80s and the 90s. There was a lot of twisted stuff going Courage on. And the I definitely. Cowardly. i love courage i was a little too old for it by the time it came out but i did love courage
4: my mom hated it It because it got me so scared but i wouldn't stop watching it (laughs) (laughs) Um,
3: anyway i love that so did you get scared um watching horror movies a lot as a kid or or was it just particular ones that that scared you yeah
5: it was just generally traumatizing generally i've been for years doing my best to like stay away from horror movies and it was probably when i was like maybe 15 or 16 probably 16 and i got the hollywood video card and had unfettered access and my parents were like we trust you you're you're old enough now you have good judgment go rent whatever you want and like i made this conscious decision i don't like Having to avoid a certain type of movie, I don't like something having that kind of control over me and having that kind of influence over my life. And so I went about on this purposeful campaign of desensitization. And oh. I kind of unintentionally, unknowingly gave myself like cognitive behavioral therapy with horror movies. And I was just going to Hollywood <laughs> video and like getting the stuff that I thought was going to terrify me the most. And I was like, you're going right. to desensitize yourself so that this thing doesn't control you anymore. And then I'm sitting there at late Friday night <laughs> watching this stuff. And I'm like, hey, you know what? This is actually really cool. And that's really began my Adult love affair with horror.
3: That's awesome. So did it work? Do you you get scared watching horror movies as an
5: adult? It is very hard now for a horror movie to scare me. Very few films really actually get to me anymore.
4: I am curious what has scared you now, but like, what were some of the first movies you remember watching in the beginning of this journey to desensitize yourself that were like really traumatizing?
5: (sighs) Blue Velvet, I remember. Uh, Oh,
0: interesting. (laughs) That is an interesting choice.
5: Uh, Blue Velvet um, Freaks. I remember renting Freaks because mm. uh, I grew up seeing advertisements for it. I used to get this thing called the Johnson Smith Catalog and it was just like all these weird like tchotchkes and things and it was like kids magic tricks and like box and alien puppets and then also they would have like movies remember that those. weren't really readily available and that's where I first heard about stuff like Blue Velvet uh, they used to advertise the okay. Elvira movie in there and then they advertised Freaks in the Johnson Smith Catalog and- as the most horrifying movie of all time the movie that they don't want you to see (laughs) and so i was like okay you know this is supposed to be like the apex in terror like let's let's go for it and uh i remember being younger uh black and white stuff really freaking me out because there was like this kind of like incongruity to it and this remove that it's like the 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 uncanniness of having grown up where everything was color versus this being in black and white and like i kind of had this idea in my head that uh, if somebody went to the effort to make a horror movie that long ago, that it's had to have been like really subversive and underground because, you know, it was in this more innocent, more restrictive time. And so I had this kind of schema for old black and white horror is creepier and scarier than modern color horror. So you
3: said that you, it's, it's really hard to scare you as an adult now. Do you, Do you remember like the last time that you were terrified
5: by a horror movie? Sinister. Uh, oh, okay. my, my wife and I went to go see Sinister and it was one of the last shows of the day. And I remember it was in autumn and it was down in Houston and autumn's in Houston can have this kind of creepy ambiance to them depending on the time of the year and you come out at sunset and there's like this weird half-nights, half-afternoon kind of orange cast to everything, and neither one of us had any idea what the movie was about, just my wife had seen a preview for it, and she was like, there's a cool-looking monster in it and creepy kids, we should go see this thing. And so we catch this, like, you know, late afternoon, early evening show, go into Sinister, not knowing anything about it. And then immediately, you know, that that first scene comes on with that, like, Norwegian death music and the entire family getting hanged by that tree. And it was just, oh, shit, what did we get ourselves into? (laughs) What did we sign up for? And then we went home that night and then there was a blackout. No, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, we were both already so on edge and just so unsettled. <laughs> and by the time we get home, it's dark. And then, like an hour later, the lights go out. And oh my god! At the Cut. time, <laughs> <End me now. laughs> at, at the time, we lived in a house that backed up to a creek, and we used to have snakes come into the backyard. And we had small dogs at the time, and so I kept this twenty-two caliber rifle for the snakes. <laughs> And for some reason, I was just so on edge. Those light the lights go out. There's a blackout, and my first instinct is get the rifle. <laughs> and I'm si- we're sitting there for like thirty, forty five minutes in the pitch black. The entire neighborhood is out. You look out the window and you can't see anything. And I'm sitting there in the dark, holding a rifle, thinking to myself. Why are you holding a gun? And finally, we were just both so (laughs) nervous and twitchy and like getting into our own heads and getting into one another's heads that we got in the car and drove to an all night burger joint and sat there for like the next two hours and waited for the notification to come through that the electricity had come back on.
3: (laughs) That is amazing.
0: Holy shit.
3: Wow. I mean, you know, that movie is very dangerous. Like, it feels – it's like the last – like, I've gotten scared about from movies after that, but that feels like the last, like, dangerous film that I've seen. Like, you're just – you watch it and you're like, I don't know if I should be watching this with the the little shot on video and the the lawnmower rolling over people's heads. Like, it's just –
5: Exactly. I mean, that's the perfect perfect word. Dangerous. There is a a dangerous feeling to it that's a lot of other movies don't have. And it's difficult to quite put your finger on what it is. But there's like something almost woven into the DNA of that movie that just Mm -hmm. gets you. Yeah,
3: it kind of reminds me of like, back in, in the in the 90s, where you'd get a tape and there would be no you know, title on it be, you know, because it was like recorded off of television or whatever, but you don't know what's on it and you pop it in and it could be something really fucking terrifying. It could be porn. It could be a little bit of both. <laughs> you porn. don't know what you're going to get. And it's that, that danger that that movie made me feel. And it's like, I think the last time that I've, I've felt that way in a movie theater, let alone on my own. So yes. I can't imagine seeing that movie going home and then the power goes out and be like, no,
4: nope,
3: <laughs> tap it out
5: of this. Mm-mm.
4: So I'm curious Preston now as an adult like what continues to draw you to the horror genre?
5: I like that it can be anything. It's the mm. one genre that really has no constraints on it other than fantasy maybe. Uh with sci-fi unless it's like really like kind of space opera sci-fi that at least is bound by, you know, some some tight ty- sci- at least uh, a pretense of scientific boundaries and then you know, bro- you know prestige dramas, comedies, Average films, they're, they're bound by certain rules, certain expectations, certain conventions. But with a horror film, you can really do anything and there's no boundaries on the narrative, the characters, mm-hmm. creatures, setting. And I just love that absolute freedom of imagination and narrative. Yeah.
3: It's very elastic, the, the genre, cause you can attach it to all of the things you just said and. Make a completely different movie, and I love that. Oh yeah. Um, okay, so when did you decide that you you enjoyed writing, and how did you get into writing both? Um, you know, your fiction, your your latest book, your writing about film. How did that all come about?
5: So when I was would have been six years old, I was in the first grade, and the vice principal of our school was retiring, and they asked all of the first grade students to write a story about why she was retiring. it was just like this (laughs) fun little classroom activity project. And at the time, there was this program at the school called the Gold Slip Program. And if you were seen being like a good citizen, like, you know, helping to pick up trash in the classroom or helping one of your classmates with group work or just being a good kid, you would get this little gold slip. It was a little gold slip of paper. And it would have your name on it and what you had done to earn it. And you could save them up, and then, like, you could trade them in for, like, candy or, like, little tchotchkes or trinkets or stuff. And so the story that I came up with was that the students were being so good that the vice principal couldn't count up all of the gold slips anymore. (laughs) And also, it was bankrupting the school because they were having to buy so many things for the kids. And so she broke into the school one night and vandalized the school and blamed it on all the kids and used that as an excuse to cancel the gold slip program. But then... (laughs) The police caught her on a security camera, and so the reason she was retiring is because she had to go on the run from the law now. Oh, my God. And I write this, and I turn it in, and my teacher reads it, (laughs) and she tells the teacher's aide, watch the classroom, and she leaves. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) And then she comes back and she says, Preston, come to the office. And so I go with my first grade teacher to the principal's office. And my first grade teacher is there and the principal is there and the vice principal is there. And my first grade teacher says, read this story out loud. And I sit there horrified and I read this out loud and everybody cracks the fuck up. And they are all laughing hysterically. And they thought that that was the best thing ever. And like seeing that's... My creativity could have that kind of impact on people and that like a story that I could come up with and tell could like make people laugh and like engage them like that. I just knew in that moment, you're going to be a writer. And, uh, from then on, anytime they had, uh, creative writing classes available, I took it. I took creative writing, uh, in middle school and high school. Uh, it's actually really cool. My high school creative writing teacher went on to become PC cast, who is a fantasy horror author now. She writes the, uh, oh. the House of Night vampire book series. And, uh, she was a early writing mentor of mine in high school. And I, uh, took creative oh, wow. writing with her. Uh, and then in college to creative writing. I remember going back to my mom being a horror fan and going back to me wanting to uh, desensitize myself. Oh, you know what? Another one of those early desensitize yourself horror movies was was The Shining. Oh, because I remember the drugstore in uh, Broken Arrow where I grew up had this turnstile right there by the prescription counter and they always had Stephen King books on it. And uh, I grew up being aware of The Shining, mostly through The Simpsons parody. And then I remember <laughs> waiting with my mom to pick something up and seeing the book of The Shining and picking it up and starting to read it there. And what really grabbed me was that there was a lot of bad words in it. And I would have been like 13, 14 at this time. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know books could have swears in them. I thought that, you know, literature was all, you know, this highbrow, like, you know, Mark uh Mark Twain, uh charles dickens type stuff i'd read like all of the great illustrated classics in fifth grade and so that was really my schema for what literature was and it was like you can swear and you can have nudity and sex and in books and it was like this revelatory moment for me and so even though i really wasn't a big horror fan yet at the time i asked my mom to buy me the shining and she was like okay cool and that became kind (laughs) of the What's the word I'm looking for? It was reading The Shining that like the seeds were first planted for me that I was going to be a horror writer specifically. And, uh, in high school, I played around with, uh, with crime fiction. I was really into gangster mm. movies. Road to Perdition came out when I was in high school and that had oh, a big impact yeah. on me. And then I also played around with like road movies. Uh, I was really into stuff like, um, Bonnie and Clyde and, mm. uh, what's that other one with Peter Fonda? They get killed at the end. Oh. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. train. Um, Mary and Larry, dirty, dirty Mary, crazy Larry. Uh, you know, I was, I was interested in stuff like that, so I wrote some road stories. Uh, but eventually, I, I just kept coming back to wanting to write horror-y stuff.
4: Wow, that's awesome to know from such a young age that like I'm going to be a writer. Like that's uh-huh. so cool. You know, you've written Our Lady of the Inferno. You've written the Despicable Fantasies of Quentin. Serginov? There's no
5: real right way to say it. I have no idea where the hell I came up with that name. Hell yeah. Uh, and I had just cool. been <laughs> I, I, like, came up with it, like, I, in the spur of the moments when I was, like, first creating this character, I think I, like, misremembered what Smirnoff was. I think I was actually trying to do, like, some kind of, like, vodka parody, and it's like, it just like Serginov just, like, stuck with me.
4: That's incredible, but you've two fiction and then now you have Landis, and now that it is nonfiction. So what is it like for you to kind of And you've also written, like, written, like, smaller pieces for other horror sites. So what's it kind of like for you to oscillate between the the fiction world and the nonfiction world? And kind of what, I guess not which one do you like better, but, like, which one calls to you more often?
5: Fiction definitely calls to me more. And, like, I've got, like, four different stories bouncing around in my head right now that are all fighting for supremacy in terms of what's going to be the next one that I'm going to write. I got into writing about horror uh with, with nonfiction, actually. I was uh, back in 2013, and uh, I was at a, a horror convention in Dallas, Texas Frightmare Weekend, and Rue Morgue magazine had a booth there. And at the time, I was really digging into and trying to find out what had ever happened to this horror actress named Vanessa Howard, uh, she was very briefly a British screen queen in the late '60s and early '70s. She made a couple of movies with Peter Cushing, and then she did a couple of movies uh, on her own where she was kind of the the lead. And I uh, first saw a movie that she was the star of called uh, Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly when I rent when I, I bought the VHS the supermarket. What a warehouse. title! Yeah, I know. And the movie itself <laughs> is something else. And I, I got this VHS from the bargain bin at supermarket warehouse video in broken arrow which was this video store inside the grocery store that just had stuff that you would not expect to find in a video store in a grocery store in a small town in oklahoma that's where i first rented henry portrait of a serial killer from and <laughs> so i find this movie there called I miss that that shit so much <laughs> video stores in the
4: middle of a grocery store like fuck i miss I that know. so much we need it again <laughs>
5: And so I get, no, 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 I get this movie and I go home and I watch shits and it's a, it's a fantastic film, but Vanessa Howard like is swinging for the fences in this thing. You can tell she was like 19, 20 years old at the time. And you can just tell that she thought in her head, I'm winning the BAFTA for this. And like, I'm going to like go to America and make Academy Award winning <laughs> movies because of this. It is a performance that you do not usually see in a horror film it's just incredibly nuanced and off the wall and like subtle when it needs to be and completely unhinged when it needs to be and it's just great and i couldn't understand why this woman had made so few films she made like 12 13 movies and disappeared and then one day in around late 2012 early 2013 i just randomly google her and found an obituary for her and it's this very brief, very perfunctory obituary from California. And it says, uh, Vanessa Howard Chardoff, ex-wife of Rocky producer Robert Chardoff, passed away age 62, uh, memorial service, yada, yada, yada. And I remember thinking, well, like, wait, she makes like 13 movies in England, is briefly a scream queen, disappears for 30 some years, marries the guy who made the Rocky movies, divorces him, and now she's dead at 62. And I was really curious, what what happened? Where's the story there? Because there's some fascinating story in between. And so I'm at this horror convention, and I see the Rube Morgue booth, and I think to myself, if you are a journalist, if you are writing a story for a magazine, an investigative piece, you can try and find people who knew her, try and find relatives of hers. And then it's not, hey, I'm a creepy fan who wants to know what happened to your dead mom. (laughs) It's, hey, I'm a writer for a magazine, and I'm writing a biography. And so I just go up to the Rue Morgue booth. I pitch this whole story, like everything out. And I think to myself, you know, this guy at the booth is like some intern and he's going to like maybe pass this on. And it just so happens that I had just pitched this story to Dave Alexander, who at the time was the editor in chief of Rue Morgue magazine. And he says, wow. this is great. This is really interesting. uh, Here's my business card. Let's talk. And so I got to talking to Dave, and he didn't really feel that it was right for Remorgue, but he says, I can tell from the way that you spoke to me, and I can tell from your emails that you're a good writer, and you're articulate, and you are clearly passionate and knowledgeable about horror. Let's get you reviewing DVDs. And so that was my foot in the door, and that was how I got started. Wow. And for quite some time, uh, my writing was you know, nominally nonfiction. I really wasn't doing any fiction writing at the time. And then I segued into fiction later. And when I was doing my fiction writing, I had a schedule for myself. I would do my nonfiction writing in the morning and then go to my day job and then come home from my day job. And then evenings were fiction. Good
2: Lord, how do you
4: do (laughs) How do you keep yourself to that? That's incredible. Like, good lord.
5: And so I was vacillating between the two. Uh, Nonfiction for me, I enjoy writing it, but for me, my nonfiction was more to keep my name out there and, uh, you know, get information on the things that I wanted to find out about and to share my love of movies with other people. Uh, I love, like, finding weird, obscure stuff and then telling other people about it. Like, that's something I've never gotten about gatekeeping. If somebody tells me that like they haven't heard of something i don't think oh you poser i think oh when can i show it to you uh so that's that's really what my nonfiction has always been for but my my real passion has always been fiction writing and the nonfiction has kind of been this like uh way to sustain that and allow for that to be something
3: cool okay so speaking of which uh your your latest book about bill landis uh came out in december i'll be honest i am very unfamiliar with Bill Landis, can you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about him and about um why you decided to write this book?
5: Yeah, and I mean, that's that's one of the big reasons is that you ask the average horror fan who's Bill Landis, most people haven't heard of him, and he really – kind of helped lay the groundwork for the way that we think about and write about horror cinema today. Uh, he founded a fanzine back in the early 80s called Sleezoid Express that was uh, published in uh, New York, but did have national distribution. And he had this really weird, really strange life. He was like this child genius who had gotten skipped ahead a bunch in school and had like a master's degree by the time he was 20, and wow. was living this double life. He was like this first generation of guys who uh utilized computers in the workplace. Uh, he uh, got a degree in business and he also knew about computer programming. And so in 1980, he is going and working on Wall Street by day. And then by night, he's going down to 42nd Street and just watching every single movie that he can get into And it's like this guy spent every non-working hour of his day theater hopping in Times Square, going from one to one to one. And then he'd go back to his apartment, and he would write up the Slezot Express. And it was this document of not only the movies that were showing in Times Square, but also the people who went to see them, and all of these different subcultures that had grown up around different theaters and that gravitated around Times Square. And at the time that he was doing this, uh, Fangoria had really just come onto the scene. Uh, they'd only published seven issues when the first issue of Sleezard Express came out. And the seventh issue of Fangoria is the first one that really focused exclusively on horror. Uh, the first six issues of Fangoria had more of this kind of catch-all genre blend to them. It was really mm-hmm. originally meant to be like this, uh, analog to Starlog, where Starlog would be specifically sci-fi, and then Fangori would be fantasy, horror, sword and sandal stuff, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And then issue seven comes around, and this is where they realize, hey, if we make this an exclusively horror magazine, that can be our thing. Really, you had Fangori at the time that was really still figuring itself out and was nominally focused on behind-the-scenes information and uh, uh, special effects tutorials. And, uh, you know, it was kind of this precursor to the internet. And then Famous Monsters of Filmland was around, but Famous Monsters was really this kind of nostalgia thing. It was like, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. this remember-when retro horror sort of thing. And Sleazewood Express started to develop into this critical journal. Bill did actual critical reviews and looked at deeper themes in movies and looked at it from this very kind of academic perspective owing to his background, and nobody was really doing that at the time. And he was really kind of 30 years ahead of what uh, horror criticism has evolved into today. A lot of the book uh, is not only telling his story, but kind of explaining why his name isn't as well known and why his legacy has kind of faded into the background. Uh, Sleezot Express influenced a generation who influenced another generation who influenced the people who are really writing about horror now. And because it's so far removed, and because Bill slipped into the shadows, so many people don't realize that... Indirectly and even directly without their knowing it, he kind of laid the groundwork for the way things are right now. Wow. Oh.
4: And like, I didn't know who he was until you were talking about him. And like, I read your stuff out Daily Grindhouse when it first came out, Preston. Like, it's incredible. Like, it, this is why writing is so fucking cool because you can bring these kinds of people back into the spotlight that they deserve. Because I know he kind of like faded away and like he died a pretty tragic death, didn't he?
5: Yeah, he, uh, Bill Bill was actually a uh, childhood sexual abuse survivor and uh, ended up developing a drug problem in adulthood that uh, kind of plagued him for the rest of his life and uh, went through periods of sobriety and finally had one very big last relapse that uh, resulted in a heart attack when he was 49 in 2008 jeez yeah
3: 2008
4: wow. Jesus, that was not long i mean really not that long ago and he was so young oh what if he yeah was, we won't talk about it i know that's never productive like what if he was still around but that's just so sad
5: i know yeah and i mean he should be and i mean if he were still around he would be like the great grandfather of like grindhouse and exploitation criticism right now and i mean he was yeah. he was around for so much like uh you know you, you you see uh pose on fx and like bill was hanging around stuff like that back in the 80s and writing about oh, it wow, like he, really? yeah uh he uh worked this Speaking of double lives, he he got to the point where he had more of a quadruple life. Uh He was working on Wall Street. He was writing this magazine. He was working as a, a male sex worker for a while. And then eventually he became a porn star and was using his oh. porn star money to help finance Lezoid and his drug habits. And I mean, he was star? right. Yeah. He had a very wow. strange life. Uh, and I mean, in Sleazoid, he was writing about the drag scene on 42nd Street, and he was writing about the the gay scene on 42nd Street with the bathhouses. Was he clear? He was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was bisexual. Uh, it's It seems wow. to literally be a word that was not in his vocabulary. He used the phrase, a period in my life where I was feeling more homosexually inclined.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. He
5: came from a very conservative family background. Yeah. His father was a uh, fir- first-generation or no, his mother was a first generation Greek American. His father was a World War II veteran. And so it was this very conservative family background. And I feel like even though he was open to a certain extent at the same time, like I feel like it was really kind of beat into his head that like you were supposed to be a certain way. And so at the same time he was having relationships with men and women, he never self-identified as bisexual. He identified as homosexually inclined at a period <laughs> in my life yeah
2: yeah.
3: well and I, I mean I'm guessing was this probably like in the 80s when that was happening yeah
5: and uh, yeah. yeah and
2: it's the '80s. Yeah, <laughs> like, one, that's...
5: one of the more powerful pieces of writing he did was a uh, article for the Village Voice called uh, "Using and Losing on Times Square," and it's this mm. really fantastic but really sad kind of anthropological documentation of all of his friends who were queer and sex workers and involved in drugs and just really telling the stories of their lives. And as he said later on, all the people from that article died shortly after the yeah. article was written. And he was this kind of last man standing, which is a you know, really sad reason. Another sad reason that he's not around is because, you know, he was this walking repository of all these stories.
3: Wow. Is Is this writing available um, online anywhere? You uh,
5: know. Using and losing is available. Uh, and then a couple of other pieces of his, of his are floating around out there uh, because of the... His final years, you know, he got really bad back into drugs. He burned a Mm. lot of bridges during his last years on Earth. And one of the big obstacles for me in writing the book was finding people who were even willing to talk about him and talk about their time with him. And I feel like because of those last bad years, there's not been as much of an effort to preserve his work. And really Uh. something I hope to accomplish in publishing the book was... Maybe causing a little bit of a renaissance in his writing where it could come back out, people would rediscover this stuff out there available online right now. No, I can get you some links after the broadcast
4: <laughs> Well, everybody, please read, and we'll put plugs like and we'll have everything in the notes, but read Preston's book, landis, a real man of forty second Street because I didn't even realize he was a porn star and that he was queer. So an incredible person, an incredible piece of horror history that we are so glad that you wow. have preserved and like are bringing back into people's like knowledge and just like everyone's sphere again.
5: Yeah, I'm really hopeful that this is gonna like get people interested in and talking about him again and, you know, to tell his story that he he would call himself Mr. Sleazoid in his writing and he like kind of had this yeah. performative persona of Mr. Sleazoid when he would like speak at events and... Sadly, he kind of became the persona of Mr. Slezoid, and so I'm really hopeful that this will bring Bill Landis back into the world and get people interested in Bill Landis again and not the cartoon character that he kind of got remembered as.
4: Yeah. Wow. Well, Preston, we've chatted about your incredible work and your horror history, but what film did you bring with you today to discuss with us?
5: I brought Beetlejuice.
4: Oh, Beetlejuice. Terry, say it. (laughs) What? Say Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice? Yeah, some of these. We see each said it one time, so we said it three times. It's my bit for the day. <laughs> oh it's like, what? Say it. <laughs> Just say it. Say it. Yeah, you have to guess. <laughs> um, anyway. Like, Deo? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in Beetlejuice, the spirits of a deceased couple are harassed by an unbearable family that has moved into their home, and they hire a malicious spirit to drive them out. An incredible way of summarizing Beetlejuice. But Preston, (laughs) to get us started, tell us why this is your Scarred for Life movie. Tell us everything about why you picked this film.
5: This is the very first horror film that I can ever remember seeing and this was another one of those movies my dad showed to me he loved michael Ke- he loves michael keaton <laughs> my dad is still with us he still loves michael keaton and this was you know it's really weirdly at the time kind of being marketed as a family movie
2: uh, yes you know, it was they had
5: the toys and then they had the tv series later uh and so my dad you know figures okay I like michael keaton and this is a family movie so we're going to watch beetlejuice and so he shows it to me and it terrified the absolute ever living shit out of me. What, what, what was that? It came out in, came out in 89, I think. Yeah. And, I believe,
3: uh, 88, 88, actually. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I would
5: have been like three when I saw this because I saw it, like, my dad got it on VHS as soon as it came out on VHS. And so I'm like three years old watching this and I am oh absolutely no. fucking traumatized. Everything is fine for me. I'm okay with everything in the beginning of the movie. Okay. There's a couple of ghosts. Gina Davis is a cute old, you know, cute lady. I've got this <laughs> little boy crush on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Oh, Beetlejuice is a cool thing. And then that scene where the banister turns into a snake.
3: Oh, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. scene
5: just turned my blood to. Ice And I remember starting to shake and starting to just lock up and just absolutely freaking the fuck out and pulling the covers over my head and being like, I cannot see this. And to this day, I don't know why I can't remember what was going through my head at the time because I love snakes as a little kid. But for some reason, that scene was just like a full on full blown panic attack. And I just had to have my parents stop the movie and oh, fast wow. forward past that scene for the snake to be gone. And okay, we'll pick up after that. But I could not sit through that scene. And that was the earliest experience I had with just being absolutely un- incomprehensibly terrified by something that I saw in a movie.
3: And so wait, you were how old? You were three? I would have
5: been like three. Yeah.
3: Wow. I can't imagine seeing this movie when you're three. Yeah, I, I just can't.
4: <laughs> I saw it pretty young, but I definitely was not three. I was not three years old. So, like, after you watched it, like, did it stick with you? Did it have like lasting effects on you after you after it was over?
5: So this is the beginning of that thing I was talking about before, because all I could think after seeing that were two things: I never want to see anything like that again, and I want to watch the movie again. <laughs> Made my parents tape it off TV. And I had a copy of Beetlejuice and I would fast forward past that snake scene. But damn, if I didn't watch that movie until the tape was warped at the beginning.
3: That's amazing. That's amazing. I
0: love Beetlejuice.
3: Uh, I do, too. Uh, You know, okay, I I don't know when I saw this movie. I would have been I would have been seven when it came out, but I don't think I saw it right away. I believe I might have seen the cartoon first. And let me tell you, watching the cartoon and then watching this movie are two completely different experiences. Have you seen the
5: cartoon, either of you? Oh, yeah. I loved it. I was on Saturday mornings in St. Louis.
4: Uh, Like clips, but I haven't seen it in the whole I've never really watched it before.
5: I remember uh Burger King had this tie-in where they were supposedly handing out Beetlejuice toys with the kids meals at Burger King and I was so excited because I had all of the Beetlejuice action figures and this was going to like pad out my collection <laughs> and it was mm. the chinchiest thing. They were like these little oh. vinyl statues. They weren't even mm-hmm. like the like Lion King toys that they did later. They were just like these little three inch tall vinyl statues and I remember being so disappointed that's no, you don't get Beetlejuice toys. You get like these little rubber statue things.
3: <laughs> so Mary Beth, what what is so wild to me is that they took the character of Beetlejuice, which we'll get into in a minute, <laughs> and like de-adultified him so that he and Lydia are best friends. He calls her babes. She calls him BJ. They're like just best friends that go on adventures together for the most part. And he loves puns. Like every single episode is just puntacular. Just all the puns you could... In fact, there is a 30-minute, and I watched some of it, a 30-minute super clip on YouTube of all the puns, of just him just punning the entire time. And it's it's always like, there's one point, the one I remember is there was a scarecrow where he was going to be a scarecrow for a beetle farm because he loves to eat beetles, obviously so he goes there and there's birds and he's like i could shoo them away and he turns into a shoe like that that's the kind of punny behavior that that this show was full of but to go from seeing that to seeing his character in um in the movie is is quite a
5: change (laughs) i mean i would just love to have been in the executive meeting where they came up with this i mean it's like basically saying hey let's make a children's cartoon out of silence of the lambs and hannibal lecter will be clarice's helper and he'll yes. like help her to catch the bad guys and they'll like run around and have like international adventures together yes
3: and you know i was i, I was watch watching that. some clips of the <laughs> i, I kind of would too but i was watching some <laughs> some clips of of uh the the animated series on youtube today at, at lunch i was like oh i gotta pull this up because i i haven't seen them in forever you know, I, I, I'm I'm fairly convinced because that, that started in 1989 is when that show started, so like a year after the movie came out, a, a year-ish. And not like two years later, Red and Stippy comes out, and you can sort of see like a direct correlation in the terms of like the sort of, he's a gross character, he's sort of like adult-ish humor but like kid-friendly like you can kind of i think see that trajectory of the, that kind of character and that kind of comedy style started in in some ways i think with with that show because it's there's some kind of gnarly stuff going on in that show for a kid's thing that was played on saturday mornings
5: i had never thought about that before but you know i i can really see that Cause he's kind of gross yeah and he's
3: gross in the cartoon and
4: red and stimpy is disgusting
5: and doesn't does, does like body parts of his fall off occasionally I think, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like nose will pop off and then, like, there's... A- oh,
3: he, like, pulls himself out of himself at one point. Like, he's, like, he talks about... Uh, I can't remember what the pun was, but then he just, like, reaches inside and pulls himself out and he's inside muscles and bones on the outside playing an accordion oh, or something. Uh- like, he does... Wild body horror stuff that I'm like, wow! shows <laughs> in the 80s and 90s were fucking wild. It's so
4: funny that they decided that he would be the hero or like the fun sidekick when in this movie he is very yes. aggressively a disgusting misogynistic rapist,
3: sexual <laughs> harasser like, slash rapist. Yes.
4: Look and look, I love Beetlejuice. Like I know he's a bad and like, but the, the thing is, he's supposed to be a bad character. But then just the fact that they're like, yeah, let's take. The really bad, terrible guy. And make him fun. (laughs) It's like, I guess. Sure.
5: Yeah, he's like this very protective, like almost older brother figure to her in the cartoon. And like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of episodes that revolve around him having to like rescue or protect her from like some Mm -hmm. greater danger. And it's like. Fascinating. mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: And meanwhile, he's trying to like, like marry a teenager. (laughs) And kill everyone. Don't ever,
4: like, get to that part, ever. And, like, he really is not in this movie very much. Because, okay, so I saw this movie... I do not know how old I was, but I loved Tim Burton. Like, I love Nightmare Before Christmas. I loved all that stuff. So I saw this pretty early, and I wasn't that scared of it, because I was just like, I love the the goofy effects and stuff like that. The only thing that scared me was Little Alien Man at the end, when they get married. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why, because yes. I, I was scared of aliens. He's freaky. I also have a funny story about this whole – about all of this. But, um – I loved this movie so much, and I haven't seen it in a long time. I like I have a lot of it committed to memory, but I forgot that he really isn't in it very much at all. In this, uh, like, really, he's barely in the film. But goddamn, if Michael Keaton is not incredible as this nasty, moldy, <laughs> stink! I can just like whenever he kisses on someone on the mouth, I'm like, what does that smell like? Like, what does that smell like? <laughs> like, what is the smell and the texture of that? Because it's got to be nightmarish just ugh. but he's so disgusting and the makeup
3: effects are like are really good and i i was watching like a, a 4k you know the 4k restoration or whatever Oof. they did with it when they released it and, 4K. and i'm like ugh, he is so gross looking like even more so when it's in pristine like you know resolution Every and not on some like greeny vhs weird mold tape
1: on
4: his face oh. or whatever is happening like all over himself where he's just, just kind of green
3: his performance though nicholas cage meets jim carrey is what it comes across as for me, like the love child of the two of them. Yes, yes. I
4: I love Michael Keaton though. I feel like he isn't given oh. as much love. I mean, he, he's a lot. I know he's not, he's not underrated by any means, but like I just feel like his Gonzo performances are incredible. Like in this. Also, have you guys seen White Noise? His terrible ghost movie. Oh, I've
5: seen it. The trailer for that.
4: <laughs> I loved that movie because he was in it because he was Beetlejuice <laughs> to me and so I was just like and then uh-huh. I saw it and I was like oh this is terrible but I watched it a couple times because it was like I had like a Michael Keaton crush because of Beetlejuice but anyway <laughs> that's <laughs> I was young so I, was, I made some mistakes it was fine <laughs>
3: Were you going to talk about the trailer for White Noise? Yes,
5: because yeah. I can't remember what movie I saw that before, but speaking of stuff that like actually still scares me as an older person, the trailer for that... Uh, Terry, oh. did you 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 know what I'm talking about.
3: Oh, I do know yes. what you're talking about, where they're playing like the EVP type yes. noises on the trailer. Yes. Yes. That was like, I that got me to see the movie. I was like, like oh, yep. that is a bait and switch right there if I've ever seen it. Was. I, was. I
5: expected so another much. dangerous movie out of that.
3: Uh huh. And
5: go in and got, well, we all know what we got.
3: <laughs> uh huh. I'm also surprised, though, that, that Beetlejuice, and I had to look it up on IMDb, and it is pg not pg 13 pg wow and i'm like how he says the he says fuck mm-hmm. and he grabs his junk and goes honk honk <laughs> which is what i remembered most about this movie because when i was a kid <laughs> all the kids go would go around and going honk honk and grab their nuts and i'm like <laughs> that is what i remember most about this movie is everyone imitating that scene and i'm like now it's like this is really gross
4: nice fucking model Honk, honk.
3: Honk, honk. <laughs> or when he turns around from them and he makes a jerking off motion. Okay,
4: so I'm like, I did not. So again, watching this now as an adult <laughs> versus when I watched it younger, I caught so much of that shit that oh. I did not catch because I always remember he did this, and I was like, "What does that mean?" And he was jerking off the and like, Can you be scary? And then like his monologue where he's yelling about like he lived through the Black Plague, he watched The Exorcist 167 times. Like, there's so many little things that I never caught and watching it now I'm like there's so many like, little horror references throughout this entire movie that are woven in and a bunch of really nasty jokes and things like that one having subtitles was very helpful but two watching it now like older and kind of like understanding the world a little bit better i was like oh this is much more adult than i thought besides just like gore not even gore but like effects aside like much more adult but also the what got me this time was the existential dread of dying got to me a lot this time watching it because like, I didn't really think about Barb and Adam. Adam, I didn't think a lot about Barb and Adam. I was like, oh, they're just like people. I didn't think of them as ghosts as much because they didn't look like ghosts. But watching it this time, I was like, this is fucking tragic. Like, this is so upsetting to see these two people- find out they're dead and then just watch their house get completely torn up from under them and they can't do anything about it. And they're talking about how they have like cabin fever and they don't know what to do. They can't get the vacuum out of the garage or out of the, out of the shed and they're just like moping. And like you always think of ghosts as so scary, but these are mopey depressed ghosts. And that makes like death seem so much more boring and then you know you go to the waiting room in the other world and it's much more colorful and crazy but they still death is in a waiting room you if you commit suicide you are a,
3: a civil servant civil
4: servant this movie has a lot of weird relationships with suicide i will say that like there's a lot of really weird things in this movie but it just got to me how depressing this movie really kind of is and how like beetle himself is trapped and needs to like woo them so he can no longer be, like, trapped doing nothing and being stuck and doing nothing. Just a lot of, like, really made me think about nature of death and ghosts. And just it's much more morose, I think, than a kid would maybe perhaps see it for.
5: Yeah, I didn't realize at the time this was my introduction to existentialism. And, like, Hmm. I didn't 100% get it at the time. But, like, on this, like, intuitive level, like, something stuck with me because I can remember thinking as a kid – like, being worried about what I was wearing because, like, I was afraid, like, oh, if you die, this is, like, what you're going to be wearing for all eternity. And, like, I'll still catch myself thinking that sometimes to this day. It just, like, got deep in there on, like, this, like, gut level where, you know, you you get these beliefs as a younger person that you just can't shake even as you become a more rational adult. Uh, and I'll still occasionally just find myself having these thoughts like, you know, oh, make sure that you have something nice on because if you get killed in a car crash, you're going to be walking around in that <laughs> bloody outfit forever. <laughs> but But yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, at once this very wacky, like, you know, zany, like crazy ghost movie. But then at the same time, like some of the movie's ideas about... The nature of death and existence, and the potentiality of what an afterlife could be like—it's—it's it's very serious and mordant and darkly philosophical.
4: Yeah, well, and like I was watching this today on my iPad at Urgent Care, waiting to get a COVID test because I have COVID <laughs> symptoms, and I was watching it, and it. T- <laughs> It made I'm so sorry. It made the waiting room seem so much more fucked up and kind of darkly funny as I'm sitting there in the waiting room just like incredible. Incredible. I didn't even think about that. Like yeah. how the waiting room is like purgatory and you're just sitting there uh-huh. just like cool, great. Waiting
3: for that number, 9 yeah. million to be called.
4: <laughs> I am negative everybody by the way.
0: I just feel like <laughs> shit. <laughs>
3: The waiting room is the other thing that has stuck with me over the years because I just remember in particular the woman that was cut in half and thinking how nice that effect looked when I was a kid and being like, wow, how did they do that? And as an adult, I think it still looks really good, but like all of the kind of – Creepy ways people died in it. The the man with the shark that's eating his leg is my favorite. Uh the the shrunken head, a little problematic with the witch doctor next to him. I was like, okay, this is the 80s. That's a little weird. But um I my favorite though is the the man that is splatted, and he is hang up like clothes on a hook and just moving through the factory. And then there's another guy that's hung and he hanged, and he's like just hanging there, swooping back and forth as he is moving along the conveyor. Like, this is fucking dark for a kid's movie but i never really realized it as a kid
4: well and she holds up her her arms like if i if i had known then what i know now i wouldn't oh, have I my little accident and I, when i was a kid i was like what does that even mean i know now
3: yeah or <laughs> Juno you know smoking and the the, the mm-hmm. smokes coming out of her slit throat like just so much
5: I was obsessed as a teenager with trying to identify all the different people in the waiting room because I first saw this on like a VHS taped off to TV and, you know, the Mm. video quality wasn't that good. And then like the DVD of Beetlejuice was the very first DVD I bought with my own money after I uh, got a job and like I went out and got it. And of course, at the time, we didn't have a DVD player, so I had to watch it on the desktop. And uh, I remember (laughs) sitting there. Thinking, one, wow, I've never seen a movie like this before. And then two, realizing that because the video quality was so poor on the VHS, there were entire Mm -hmm. corners of the waiting room I had never seen before. And, like, I thought there was only, like, maybe four or five other ghosts in the waiting room with them. And then I saw it on the DVD, and it was like, there's, like, a dozen or so ghosts in there. And, like, I'm still not even sure I have gotten all of them, even watching it on subsequent generations of DVD, because there's so many little minute details in there. It looks like there's this little guy at one point who I think is maybe meant to be a soldier, or maybe he's a statue. I don't know. But there's just such... Little details in there.
3: The man that's burnt to a crisp and he's still holding his cigarette, smoking. Oh. It's gnarly.
4: <laughs> he, it always made me laugh because my stepdad is like a, as a
0: smoker.
4: Like he is a smoker, and whenever he was like, "You want a cigarette?" I've been meaning to cut back too. We'd always look at my stepdad John and laugh at him
0: <laughs> and say,
4: that, "That's you." Like it's not funny, but it was incredible. It was like so darkly funny, and he always took it in stride. But yeah, I always think of my stepdad. <laughs> That, that part comes up.
3: You know, one of the things that I really noticed this time, though, is, and it's such a small detail, it's never really brought about, it's never really talked about in the film, but it, it shows up, the scene that I know in particular is when they're talking with Juno, their caseworker, and behind them is a, a screen, and it's a theater. Yes! And there's dead people in the theater watching them as if they're watching a movie. And I'm like, wait, I didn't are they? is this that. like a movie
5: to them, too? I never noticed. It was so weird. I wish I would have the opportunity to see that on the big screen, because I know for audiences seeing that for the very first time, that had to have been a really weird, jarring effect, because it almost gives the illusion that, like, they're watching us. And, like, I can just imagine, like, sitting there in a theater and like all of a sudden seeing all these ghosts there looking through the window and like two of them kind of look like the blues brothers i've never been able to figure out what's going <laughs> uh-huh. on there and that's that's another scene where i've always tried to like freeze frame it and like identify all the different ghosts in that theater behind juno's office
3: it's so it's so wild and I'm, i i didn't even think about the fact that they're watching us i was like are they watching the maitlands is like beetle just a movie for them too is, <laughs> is, is, the way, is working my mind i'm like what is happening here? this is very fourth wall busting meta without even like saying hey look i'm meta it's just like like this random scene that happens, I think maybe twice in the in the movie where we see them. And it's just, I never noticed it before as a kid.
5: I just wish that Tim Burton would do a commentary for it. I wish they would come out mm. with a DVD that's got more special features. Uh, back during the same teenage years, in the early 2000s, there was this website called The Website for the Recently Deceased. And it was this <laughs> guy who was single-mindedly obsessed with the movie Beetlejuice. And he was like finding people who had worked on the movie and like getting their like on set oh, wow. photos from them. And like there was a lot of stuff that like didn't make it into the final movie. There was stuff that got cut out. There was like effects that's like didn't work out that they ended up editing out. And there like it's just a treasure trove floating around out there of BTS stuff on Beetlejuice. And I just oh, love yeah. Um. Uh. Really uh, funny thing. Uh. I'm guessing they cut this out for probably uh. Rating purposes, going back to talk about the rating <laughs> before, but you know, he, uh, he has the spikes come out of him a, at that one point where Barbara picks him up and he's tiny and then mm-hmm. those spring out. And that's because she originally says, listen here, you little prick. And then he <laughs> is going to say prick, huh? And then bam, the spikes come out of him. And if you watch the movie now, you can just barely catch the beginning of Gina Davis starting to make that
2: oh, wow. p- sound.
5: But, like, there's so much stuff that got edited out, and I just wish somebody would do a Crystal Lake Memories uh, or Never Sleep yeah. Again style, like, complete making of Beetlejuice, because uh, the website's gone now. And I don't even know if Internet Archive picked it up, but, uh, like, I would just love to go into all those deep dive details and all the very little things that went into it.
3: Yeah, you know, you know, and I've, I've talked about this guy before on the podcast, but Michael McDowell, who is um, – one of the the co-writers, he wrote like I think the the original draft of it, and then I think it was too dark. From what I understand, I was doing a little bit of searching, but it was like much more bleak, much more horror driven. That there was like the original script, and I found this. Um, I can't remember which article I found this online on, but it might have been IndieWire. But there was a much more intense version of the Maitland's car crash where Gina Davis's arm gets smashed in graphic detail, and then. And Beetlejuice is a leather-winged demon whose humanoid form is that of a squat Middle Eastern man, which is kind of cringe. Uh, and <laughs> he's a lot more homicidal and a lot more sexual assaulty and rapey than he is in, in, um, Yes. The original
5: and then what ended up getting made from what I understand. So I actually got my hands on an original draft of that script during the same oh, wow. period when I got like hooked up on, uh hooked on finally got everything I could about the movie.
4: Preston, I love that you put your mind to something and you literally fucking go for it. That's <laughs> incredible. I'm obsessed.
5: It's the benefits of high functioning autism. Uh <laughs> (laughs) so i you know i just had to know everything about this and i went to the trouble of tracking down and buying a script off of ebay that was uh michael mcdowell's original uh draft of the movie and it is very different and it does have a much darker tone there's like a scene where so originally the maitlands were going to have an apple orchard and it had deer that came and visited it and there was supposed to be a scene at the beginning of adam going out into the apple orchard and it was supposed to be this very edenic scene of like him in nature Mm. and like wandering through the trees and then like a deer Gonna come up to him, and he was supposed to pick an apple from the tree and feed it to the deer. And then later on in the movie, after their ghosts, there was supposed to be the scene where he like looks out and sees the deer out there, and then, like, I, if I recall correctly, like tractors come and start knocking down the trees, and he like breaks down sobbing, and he's just like sitting on the floor of the attic, like crying and like having this oh my God. absolute breakdown. And like you see more of them in the car, and it's like this the thing that's always haunted me from it is that Michael McDowell writes in there that like her arm gets crushed, and like Adam has the opportunity to get out of the car. And he, like, freezes and he's, like, torn between do I stay and help her or do I actually get out of the car? And it was, like, this very psychologically real thing. And, of course, like, he stays in the car. And uh, actually, in the it's it's a funny thing. In the movie, there's an artifact of that because when they very first come home after having died and they're wet and she says, my arm is cold. And that's this callback to this deleted thing with her arm getting crushed. And in uh, Michael McDowell's original draft, it was a little bit more conventional. They were supposed to meet this, like, angelic figure called, if I recall correctly, Swallowtail or Sparrowtail. And they go into the model, and there's, like, an angel statue there. And then Beetlejuice has, like, tied him up to the back of the statue. And, like, Beetlejuice takes his place and says, well, like, I'm going to help you. And uh, at a certain point, Sammy Davis Jr. was actually... Uh, the like ideal choice for Beetlejuice, and yep. that's where this idea, I did see that. Yeah, too. that's where this idea of like this like Middle Eastern guy comes from because they wanted Sammy Davis Jr. to be doing like this like weird, vague accent. Like Ma- Michael McDowell describes it as having like this pitois that could be like any language at once. So it's supposed to be like this like implaceable thing. Oh. And it was going to be this, like, weird convention. Uh, the Dietz family originally had another kid, and it was Lydia, who was, like, this edgy goth girl. And then, like, this cute little girl named, I think, like, Cindy. And, like, Cindy was the one who was going to be able to see the Maitlands. And it was going to be this, like, a little bit more conventional, like, cute little girl befriends the ghost story. And Beetlejuice was going to appear to each member of the Dietz family in different guises that were like tailored to like their particular personality traits like he was going to appear to lydia as like this goth rocker and then i can't remember maybe an art dealer for the mom i can't remember and like he was going to like worm his way into each of their lives in these friendly guises and then like slowly take their lives apart and like you say that, that the character was originally a lot more rapey like there was actually going to be like an attempted full-on sexual assault scene of Lydia where he was going to, like, throw her down on a bed and, like, tear open his shirt and, like, he was going to have, like, this gnarly, like, Cronenberg-y chest thing going on and, like, try to attack her and then, like, he was going to, like, transform into this little squirrel monster to attack the little girl and then finally, yeah, and, like, Otho was originally a much more positive character and, like, he does have, like, some legitimate seance skills and, like, he was going to, like, help the Dietzes and the Maitlands to fight Beetlejuice and, like, in the climactic seance. Sequence. That's where we get to see Beetlejuice's true form and he like turns into like this kind of like uh, Tim Curry and legendy like leathery brown wings like serpent tailed demon creature Mm -hmm. that they fight. But uh, yeah, it was really different in a lot of the execution. And uh, I don't think quite as whimsical or as uh, wacky (laughs) as Tim Burton wanted.
4: (laughs) Would not say that's wacky.
3: Well, you know, I was thinking about this because, like, we, I, again, I I know I've mentioned this listeners on the podcast before. because we talked to Angela Sane about uh, episode 83 about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. And Michael McDowell wrote one of the sequences in that. And I, you know, I at that time I did some digging on him. And, you know, he's a he was a queer. He's a queer author, screenwriter. He died from AIDS in 1999. Uh, but he co wrote queer detective novels in the 80s under a combined pseudonym, um, Nathan Aldine. And it was it just such, speaking of someone who had like a, a, a curious life, the, this man that wrote this and also wrote one of the original, um, screenplays for the adaptation of, um, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Really? Yeah, he wrote the uh, the adaptation of that, and then again, like in this one, I don't think it met the tone that Tim Burton <laughs> wanted, and so he he uh, I, I can't remember if he hired someone else to rewrite it or or what happened there, but yeah, he was the original um, adaptation screenwriter of Nightmare Before Christmas, I would, and also wrote thinner.
5: I would love to read that. I would love to see what he did with Nightmare Before Christmas.
3: Yeah, I, he, he seems to have a very kind of darker outlook than like t- takes that sort of whimsical aspect from Tim Burton and throws it to the curb. It just goes like the more macabre Santa aspect. Santa gets it seems thrown like. into
4: a blender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would watch it. <laughs>
5: uh, actually, yeah, the, the the waiting room scene is completely Tim Burton's. That was not in the Michael McDowell version at all. And like the idea of the afterlife as a bureaucracy, that's completely original Tim Burton's uh, version of the script. Uh, in the Michael McDowell version, anytime they try to get out of the house, they just encounter some different type of limbo. Uh, and this is oh, wow. uh okay. one of those things that like the website for The Recently Deceased had. There was a point in filming where they were going more with that approach because one of the different limbos was supposed to be like this giant black void with clock gears in it. And it was like clock oh. gear shooting through space. And there's actually stills out there of... um Oh, Adam. Yeah, yeah, of Adam. Yeah, in like this void where they were like having him stand there for like what was going to be the clock effects that they ended up jettisoning.
3: Oh wow! Now, did I miss something? Or when they, did they get teleported to Saturn? Is that where these worms are?
5: I have no clue what the hell is going on with those.
4: The only reason why I know it, I think it's Saturn, is just because Beetlejuice says you guys been to Saturn too. Whoa sandworms, right? Am I right? But there's no explanation as to why they go there, what the sandworms... Maybe it's in the manual and they just didn't read it. Like, whatever. But there is not one thing... about what the I fuck too. they are and i love them so much i love these stupid fucking sandworms
3: well i was i was kind of it reminded me watching this time of, of dune right and so i was i was kind of wondering if it was sort of like because it's on if if they do yeah. go to, to saturn if it's sort of like this desert planet dune aspect to it because there's watching it as an adult there's a lot of horror references in this i actually had to pause and rewind the moment when they're trying to scare uh the deetses and she Barbara is, is holding the knife in Adam's head Her her mouth, her smile Looks almost exactly like Phyllisa Rose's from um, Sleepaway Camp Like she's doing that kind of Like smile face That I'm pretty sure, I had to rewind it I was like, I'm pretty sure they're referencing Sleepaway Camp and they reference the fly With the fly and he goes, how? And <laughs> I also think that the <laughs> the sheets with the eyeglasses, like underneath the sheets, is sort of like a direct callback to to Michael Myers, <gasps> where he has the sheets on and has the glasses on the outside. Like, there's all these little moments that I'm like, I'm wondering that they could be. They're not, except for the the fly help me part. But like, they seem like they could be referencing horror movies, but not necessarily drawing attention to it if that makes
5: sense i had never picked up now i gotta go back and watch it
3: the the felissa rose one though i i like was like whoa wait i had to go back and i actually went and i looked up online and there there are like pictures comparing the two and she she looks just like i mean she's she's not naked and but like she's she looks just like that character
0: Oh, That makes a lot of
4: sense. And then you also have like the very, like the vocal, like the dialogue, like, you know, like the Night of the Living Dead under under the sheets. And they're like, it's a horror movie. And then he says The Exorcist, like 167 times and all that stuff. And you can really see Burton's kind of love for the horror genre in this movie quite a bit.
3: And I also think like the bio exorcist aspect of it is like how horrifying is that? Are they like dispelling life from people? What what is a bio exorcist like? Are they removing the soul from bodies? Is that what his job
5: is? I never picked up on that before. I wonder if it's supposed to be like this gallows pun: you bio exorcise somebody, you kill them.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Plus, if if he okay, if he was he used to be a caseworker. And he used to be a civil servant. Does that mean that he also committed suicide then At and to get there?
5: Yeah, I, th- I always wondered that. That was one of these big mysteries for me was how did Beetlejuice die? Because it seems that he is a ghost. And so if he worked, you know, like you said, if he worked for Juno, then he has to have been alive at some point. So, you know, yeah. And then I remember after that, like starting to look for signs like, okay, well, how did he die? And like you know because everybody's got their markings of
1: mm-hmm. you know
5: what they look like when they die with the wounds or injuries. And I remember obsessively looking on the Michael Michael Keaton's makeup for signs like did he hang himself, did he drown, what happened? Yeah,
4: I kept moving. He he talked about how he had a great time during the Black Plague, and I don't know if he was just fucking around or if that's like he was dead before the Black Plague and he's been around for a long time as like a specter of death. I don't know. Again, like that could just be like an like an off the off the wall thing he says, but that kind of stuck in my head this time is like, is that a marker of who he was or what he has been in this world? but yeah, I don't know.
3: I also do want to talk about the Maitland's attempts to scare the family i I love those sequences <laughs> from the they're moaning, and Lydia Ooh. thinks that her parents are fucking
4: <laughs> I'm a child. <laughs>
3: I, to when they, they, they I, I honestly think it, it's actually quite horrifying how they manipulate their faces into like the kind of, kind of peacock bird type thing. And then she just like rips her mouth open like an alligator and has the eyes poking out. Although I did notice this funny moment that on this watch where Adam holds up his glasses to his eye fingers to like look through because he can't read. I just thought that was such a funny little moment. But the, the effects in this movie are actually quite gnarly.
5: I know. And they really hold up too. like, even like 30 some odd years later, it's like, they Mm -hmm. look crisp and cool and smooth.
3: Yeah. And that the snake scene, the, the very (laughs) traumatizing snake scene for young Preston is actually (laughs) quite good where she's moving her hand along the banister, and then it just turns into the snake body. I thought it was really well done. Although I have to say, I'm angry that you brought a movie that has surprise spiders in it, Preston, because (laughs) this is the third or fourth time that someone has done that in the movie. And I was expecting it. So like the moment the camera's panning over in the opening, I was like, "Ah, I remember this. And so I just, I can't, I can't look at spiders. They terrify me. And so that moment, and then again, there's a moment a little bit later where Lydia's walking through the house and there, you know, she sees a spider web and there's a little black spider on. I'm like, God
5: damn it. I wasn't prepared for that one.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I just I have to bring it up because every time someone brings on the movie, I'm like, ah, someone brought on the Beyond, and I'm like, no, someone brought on uh, something wicked. This way comes, and I'm like, no, no, no no spiders. I'm done with spiders. Uh. Um,
4: I do want to talk about Otho very quickly because I I love Otho. He's such an asshole, and I love him (laughs) so much. The way he's like, I can't come in the front door, it's bad luck. And his ass is just like pulling himself (laughs) into the window, like in those pretty red shoes. I remember when I first saw this movie, I I didn't understand who he was, and I loved him. I was like, He's such a bitch. Like, (laughs) I'm obsessed with him. And he's just like, has an attitude and this vibe of like, I'm a city guy, and I'm, I look down on everything. I was also a paranormal researcher, like all of his stuff. But I just <laughs> loved him so much in this movie, and I loved him even more this time. Like, I get he's obviously not a great person, but I just, especially when Beetlejuice when he to punish him puts him in like the light colored suit and he runs out screaming because he's no longer in like couture, but he's in like this very big like, powder blue suit, and he screams and runs out of the house. It's just incredible. It's an incredible, and the guy, the actor, um, Glenn Shaddix, yeah. I believe, he was also the voice of um, the mayor of Halloween Town in Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas.
5: They actually had an Otho action figure. Did they? They had it. Yeah, I had it. They had an Otho action figure, Aww. and like he, uh, it was like him wearing like this kind of like kimono type thing. And like he pushed down on his shoulders and his head popped off and there was like another head underneath that was like him screaming. And it was like scared Otho action figure. You know, like all these toys back then had like some kind of like action dynamic title in them. And it was like, you know, spinning head Beetlejuice and like scared Otho action figure.
3: Okay, I remember this now that you talk now that you're mentioning it. I remember this because I and I think I had this because I'm seeing the action figure that had the little gold four-legged worms. yes yes that uh,
5: toys were so awesome back in the 90s and 80s and i just remember thinking to myself two things it's like who wants the otho action figure from beetlejuice and then asking my parents to buy me the otho action figure from beetlejuice (laughs) because i had to have a complete set
3: i you know i i love him and i i think i mean he's obviously queer coded but i got i'm curious what his deal is like is he is he living
5: with them I think maybe. I think that he's like got this like sweet deal going for himself or he's just like completely convinced Mrs. Dietz that like he is going to like set her life right. and He's like <laughs> going along for this really cool ride and, like, he's there as her, like, live-in life coach because I think there's, like, a scene where it's, like, really early in the morning and he's, like, kind of shuffling around in a bathrobe and, like, goes outside and it's, like, I
4: think he is just living with them. It's the day after the shrimp hand scene, the best cinematic scene of any film of all time. Like, he was, um... He comes out in this like his kimono into their new back porch and how they 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 just made that beautiful house into something very weird. But for some reason, I thought they painted the house black, so I'm glad they didn't. I just imagined in my head that they painted the house black. I don't know why I remembered it that way, but I love the way he just kind of like walks around the house like it's his house. And the dad, the dad, all he wants to do is relax. Like this guy, I have a screenshot of he's like been here for ten minutes relaxed already and he's like rocking back and forth like aggressively like trying so hard to achieve relaxation and his wife the incredible Catherine O'Hara oh. is like I will fucking die if I do not remodel this house and so he's just like so many at times of him trying to drink tea in the morning or just like relax and things burst through windows and things are getting remodeled I was reading somewhere and they don't really mention this in the movie, but apparently that he ha- the dad had, like, a nervous breakdown, and that's why they moved to the country.
3: <laughs> oh, okay.
4: It's on Wikipedia, so, like, who knows if that's actually true or not. But, like, he was a real estate developer, and he moved out there to, like, get some peace and quiet. And so he's, like, trying to achieve relaxation, and his wife will not let him accomplish that at all and i just love like that contrast of just him aggressively wanting to get into birding and like being like a dad and he just cannot do it no matter how hard they try
3: her line if you don't let me get this house i will go insane and i will take you with me oh i love that <laughs> great line oh, and then
4: when, when her weird her weird her sculptures by the way which are ridiculous mm. like when it traps her and she's like my sculptures are da- my art is dangerous like i could die <laughs>
3: Well, I also love that like going along with that kind of real estate aspect, there's a scene of him using binoculars with the like the, the window shades down just a little bit. And he's like watching and you think that he's like salaciously peeping tomming and he is staring at like the architecture of a building and he's talking almost kind of dirty about it. <laughs> and then Lydia, I believe, walks in and he, he acts as if he got caught doing something he shouldn't. I'm just like, are you sexually attracted to buildings? What is going on here? <laughs>
4: But then I think he just wants to make more money, and he's not supposed to be doing that. And it's But the first time he looks at his binoculars, he just sees the bird eating the meat, which is like, I, I <laughs> always it, yes. he's like, oh, that's gross. And he's just like pecking at something on a... And then he looks at the building, and I think it's just, once again, like rich people being like, how can I turn this into monetary gain for myself? Good old rural gentrification from the wealthy.
3: You might know this a bit more, because you had the original screenplay. Is, did, is any of the dialogue from that original screenplay because some of it really seems like a, a gay person
5: wrote it i cannot remember because okay. I, I really remember like the broad strokes of the scripts and like i really remember okay. taking with me like what was different from it versus like the the more minute touches like that
3: okay because there's there's a lot of catty dialogue that i just i just love and it just seems like it just screams that a queer man wrote this like the the when when he's When Charles is like saying, oh, we'll make a dark room for you in the basement. She's like, my whole life is a dark room. It's just, I just, I love the dialogue in this, in this movie. And of course, Catherine O'Hara is just. Uh,
4: Everyone who is listening to this and loves Schitt's Creek and loves Moira and don't know, she is in this movie as Delia Dietz and she is a asshole artist and she's incredible. Especially because she has the incredible hairstyle during the infamous Deo scene with her hair and weird little tentacles on her face. Yes. And they sing Deo. Yeah. And then the shrimp hands come up and grab their faces. And they're all really happy about it rather than (laughs) scared.
5: And it was originally an Ink Spot song. I remember that. The the group who does the music they use a lot in the Fallout games. Because originally the Maitlands were mm-hmm. into like kind of like old soul and doo-wop stuff, and I think that was probably a Tim Burton choice to make it the Harry Belafonte music. Oh. Uh, But I don't know where that transition happened, but it was originally supposed to be an ink spot scene there and then another ink spot song at the end of the movie when she levitates and they dance.
3: What a demented oh. scene, though. I... That scene, it it seems so like divorced from the rest of the movie. And yet it's like, it's the scene that I think most people think of when they think of, of, of Beetlejuice. But I just love that it's, it's, it's the Maitlands thinking, yes, we got them. We possessed them and made them dance to (laughs) Dayo.
4: I didn't realize how much Belafonte was playing through the whole entire beginning of the movie. Like I didn't, again, they didn't clock that as a kid. And then I watched him like, oh, it makes sense. Like I was like, why did they even pick that song? But I guess it made more sense as he's playing throughout the entire like first half when they're alive. So that clicked more for me this time. But I was just like, why in the hell was he the person? <laughs> like, why? But then it all made sense. Also, of course, they like, we, there's no other song it could have been. You know what I mean? No. Like, what could they have done? It's perfect. My, my favorite is I, I paid attention to the sound of Lydia in the background just laughing and like standing in the corner <laughs> and just like <laughs> laughing at everybody and like pointing like and just having a grand old time with her crazy parents and their weird friends. And... Oh, it's just so well orchestrated and weird and it's so Tim Burton. Like, like the little hands especially with the shrimp hands at the at like at the end of the of the sequence. It's just incredible.
5: As many times as I have seen this movie, I have never seen Lydia laughing in that scene before. I have I I've always missed that. And I've seen this movie Me too. Yeah,
4: I'm pretty sure she's like in the corner and you can see her laughing in the back. Gotta, I'm pretty sure.
5: I've got to go see this now.
4: Yeah, I it's like not super obvious, but she's like in the back because she because I was like, I couldn't remember if she was one of the ones that gets possessed, but she steps away from the table, but she's still watching and kind of giggling and watching them do it. I think I'm—I could be misremembering, but I—I I remember like looking for that this time because I forgot that she wasn't at the table. I forgot that she's at the table, but wasn't one of the people like in the hole dance
5: i mean you're probably right i mean i I know you're right because i mean there's like we were saying before there's these all these little details in there and you Mm -hmm. can watch this movie a dozen times two dozen times and always catch something new and i think that's going to be the new thing i catch the next time i watch it
3: that scene also gives us what i think is delia's best line please they're dead it's a little late to be neurotic because they won't come downstairs (laughs) and i'm just like again this is such catty gay man dialogue that i'm just like Michael McDow- Mac- McDowell, I hope that you wrote that because I love it.
4: And then um, I do just want to say that I am ins- my wedding is going to be partially inspired by the Beetlejuice wet- wedding scene at the end. So I'm getting married in October and we have been joking that my officiant, who's one of our best friends, is going to dress up like the little man who oh comes out the from- <laughs>
5: <laughs> are you gonna have the dress and, like, wear
4: like a striped suit um, I don't actually know if it's going to totally happen but I kind of hope it does um, <laughs> but I, I am going to hopefully get shoes commissioned from Andrew Lassane. Andrew Lissane did this I need to DM you um, with Lydia and D- Beetlejuice on like a pair of Vans and have like those for like my rec- the reception oh! so I'll have like custom Beetlejuice shoes
3: awesome that's amazing yes.
4: I'm also wearing my Beetlejuice socks right now Oh, so cool <laughs> my brother got them for me for Christmas so I'm very Beetlejuice today. That's amazing.
5: And my wife told me when she saw that as a little girl, she she thought to herself, "That's the wedding dress I want when I get married." And oh, uh, yeah,
3: my- it's a gorgeous wedding dress. <laughs> it's incredible.
5: And did she wear that to your wedding? No, she, not for the wedding, but we did go as Beetlejuice and Lydia for Halloween a couple of years ago. There is a company out there that manufactures a replica of the red wedding dress from the end of the movie, oh, wow. and so I got the striped suits and my wife got the uh, the red dress, and she still has it, and we'll use that now as just her standby. If she needs some kind of uh, Halloween costume, she'll just whip out the red dress. Hell yeah. Hell
4: yeah. I just got my engagement photos done, and I had a red lacy dress that was, it was like it was Crimson Peak slash Lydia Dietz inspired purchase for the engagement photos. So I was channeling Lydia Dietz there too. So Beetlejuice, but I watched it. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be channeling Lydia Dietz (laughs) because it's like really (laughs) fucked up. I'm like, maybe it's not as funny and cute as I think it is. So I don't know. We'll have to see what I end up to
3: see. I mean, you know, that's the thing about watching a movie that, you, I, I mean, I don't, I hadn't seen this movie since I was a kid. I was really excited to revisit it because of that. But watching it as an adult is like, all these things that I thought were really cute and funny, like him, you know, smooching on everybody and like trying to sneak peeks and all that stuff as a kid is like, ah, it's funny. He's being slapstick. And as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> this guy is a terrible person he's an- but I didn't think about that as a kid
5: yeah you don't realize that he's an undead dirty old man Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> could
4: that be a band uh. title it's like undead dirty old man <laughs> <laughs> the <band name>. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we want to hit on before we give us uh before they wrap up
3: oh there was a note though that I think you put in here Mary Beth there's a musical is there a musical
4: in this <gasps> oh fuck I totally forgot Yes, there is a Beetlejuice musical and I'm very mad about it. Um, So (laughs) I looked it up and I got really mad and I kept looking at it because I got I wanted to get even angrier, apparently. And the reason I found out about it is because there was a TikTok song, a TikTok sound for a while that was from the musical. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And it was not my favorite. And then I looked it up and I was just watching the trailer and it's just not, it just looks so. Cheesy and like, again, it's theater. I'm not a big Broadway person, so like, this could just be me. But it just, it's like they took Beetlejuice, it's already silly, and made it even sillier by making it a full on musical and having like Beetlejuice and Lydia like singing and dancing together a lot. Oh, they, I think they also try to redo the Deo scene, but it's not Catherine O'Hara, so I feel like it's hard to do that. And I just don't understand why you would want to make Beetlejuice a musical. But apparently it's won awards and like is doing well, but I am not a fan of the concept
3: of it. It's funny that I doing a search for it and an article comes up, can TikTok save the Beetlejuice Broadway musical? <laughs> That's where we're at right now with with art. I just don't... Can TikTok save it?
4: I don't understand why it needed to be a musical. I mean, there's a lot of things where I'm like, why does this need to be a musical?
3: Well, I think it's the problem with iconic performances. And I don't think you can get more iconic than the the actors that are in that movie. And so everything's just going to feel like, you know, cheap after that. Because, I mean, come on. You have Alec Baldwin, who this year, not a great year for him. Uh, But you have Gina Davis. You have... Catherine O'Hara, you have Michael Keaton,
4: Winona Ryder.
3: I Winona Ryder, just iconic, iconic. Yeah,
4: and I mean, like, I don't know. I just think it's already so over the top enough. Like, we it, there's nothing that can be done to like make it a good musical. And maybe it's good, and I'm just being a, a shit. But it's, the song clip <laughs> I heard on TikTok was not very good. That's all I'll say. If it was like kind of like a funny experimental like inversion of a musical, maybe. But I don't think this is that. I think it's like a traditional. And like in the end of a trailer, it has the the girl playing Lydia go, I myself am strange and unusual. And I'm like, oh, God, it's it's like, they're obviously like preying on nostalgia. But I was just like, oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Just want everyone to know about that. There's a Beetlejuice musical out there on Broadway that people are paying a lot of money to go see, apparently. or. Some people.
3: Maybe not. A TikTok has to <laughs> say that.
4: Um, on that horrific note, uh. Terry, <laughs> how many shrimp hands out of five do you give Beetlejuice? Juice?
3: This is a four and a half for me. I, honestly, I love this movie. There's It I, It has aged incredibly well in terms of the effects. I think that it has very, like we said, iconic performances. It's weird watching it as an adult, where the, especially as a kid. Being like, oh my god, Beetlejuice is so funny. And now watching him being, oh my god, he is disgusting. He is a perv. And so that it was a weird dichotomy watching it. And then also, like you said, Mary Beth, realizing that how very little he's in. And I'm actually kind of glad we never did get a sequel, because I'm afraid that it would have been like the Beetlejuice show. And I think he is the least interesting part of the movie that is titled after his name. Um so but I, I think this movie is is. It's classic Tim Burton. I think it's Tim Burton um, doing things before he, like, really became Tim Burton in terms of, like, his style. And I think he became sort of a slave to that style in, in a way. And I think that in this is, like, a good mix of being that sort of whimsical, dark humor that I love in his in his stuff. Uh, yeah, so this is a four and a half for me. Uh, what about you, Mary Beth?
4: <sighs> it's a five. It's a full five trippy hands. Yeah. I know, th- like, rewatching it, I see the problems with it. Like, I, I, like, like you've said, Terry, but I think it's just like the way that this movie had the place this movie has in my heart as just like a very formative film for me and my little weirdo-ness mm-hmm. as a kid like i was so glad to be affirmed by that and like beetlejuice and like what is good to me in my head is like beetlejuice is a bad guy they don't try to like they make him funny but they don't necessarily try to like forgive the mm. behavior so when i'm watching right. i'm like ew he's gross i'm like well at least they're not trying to be like Hey, look, though, he makes you laugh, so he's a good guy, right? Which I feel like a lot of... Th-
3: Wait till the cops do the
2: cartoon. <laughs>
4: well, yes. <laughs> I'm not counting the cartoon on that one. That's a whole... That's weird. That's just fucking bizarre to me, but whatever. Um, I just think this movie has shaped me so much as a horror fan. I think it is mm-hmm. so clever. I think it's so funny. I think it's so weird, and it just holds up even after all these years watching it now, and it still made me laugh and made me go, ugh, at a couple points, so... Five for me, Preston. You have the final word. Full many shrimpy hands. Full
5: <laughs> five. Full five shrimp hands. I loved this movie as a kid, even if that snake scared the shit out of me. I loved it as a teenager. It's, you know, it, it brought me so much in terms of, uh, you know, opening up my imagination to, you know, what a movie could be mm. and what a story could be and, like, introduce me to so many different things. And then, like, trying to figure out more about Beetlejuice as a teenager was really kind of one of my first forays into, like, research and kind of, like, low-key investigative journalism. It's it's a gift that just keeps on giving.
3: I can't be the the one that's not giving it a five. I'm, it's a five for me, too.
4: <laughs> Bullying <can't>. works. No <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, I, I completely agree. This movie, this movie is great. Absolutely. Uh, but thank you so much, Preston, for joining us to talk about Beetlejuice. Where uh, can we just find you? And what do you have that you'd like to, to uh, talk about? You can about find me
5: part? on uh, Twitter. It's my first and last name altogether. Uh, at P-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L. Uh, and, uh, you can find my books on Amazon, but especially you can find Landis, uh, the story of a real man on 42nd street. Uh, if you're a horror writer or a horror reader or a horror movie fan or an exploitation fan, a grindhouse fan, there is some interest in this for you. And Bill Landis is his name. You should know. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I read the book that he wrote. Uh, oh yeah. Going back to something you said earlier, he did, he and his wife did write one book, Called Sleazoid Express. It's still in print through Simon and Schuster, and it's a fantastic book about exploitation cinema that came out in the early two thousands. And reading that at like seventeen years old was a incredibly formative experience for me. Uh, I knew what a horror movie was, but I didn't really know what an exploitation movie was. I didn't know about underground cinema. I didn't know about kind of outsider cinema, mm-hmm. and that book just opened my eyes to so many new directors and so many new subgenres of film and really set me on the course of my professional life. And I wanted to write this book to kind of repay that psychic debt for what Bill and Michelle gave to me. Uh, and so check out Landis, check out Bill's book, uh, you will not regret it.
3: And, uh, your book is available, um, I know it's available at Amazon, it's available uh, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, it's
5: a really cool thing about it too, is that, uh, it is, uh, through a distributor. So you can, uh, order it at Barnes and Noble, you can order it at your local, uh, brick and mortar store if you want to support, uh, local small business, but, uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold, you can get, uh, get your hands on it. Hell yeah.
3: That's awesome.
4: We'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes, guys, so you can, and read all of Preston's books and Bill Landis' book. Um, but listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What was your experience with Beetlejuice? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews.
3: And I'm at Gayly Dreadful.
4: And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred podcast.
3: And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe.
4: Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time.